morning. Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went, to his, went with his followers to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the, son, and the two sons of Zebedee with him, and he began to be very sad and troubled. He said to them, My heart is full of sorrow, to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. After walking a little further away from them, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, do not give me this cup of suffering, but do what you want, not what I want. Then Jesus went back to his followers and found them asleep. He said to Peter, You men could not stay awake with me for one hour. Stay awake and pray for strength against temptation. The spirit wants to do what is right, but the body is weak. Then Jesus went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this painful, <clears throat> for this painful thing to, t to be taken from me, and if I must do it, I pray that what, what you want will be done. Then he went back to his followers, and again he found them asleep because their eyes were heavy. So Jesus left them and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then Jesus went back to his followers and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? The time has come for the Son of Man to be <clears throat> handed over to sinful people. Get up, we must go. Look, here comes the man who has turned against me. When you look back on your life, there are probably many decisions to which you can point that, that had a major impact of good in your life. One of mine was persuading Kimberly Ann Thomas to marry me. It's too bad she's not here to hear that today. If you were to think for a moment about the one defining moment that had the greatest impact for good in your life. You know, many of you would probably say your decision to follow Jesus if you're, if you're a Christian. Some may say, you know, meeting the person whom you would marry. Others might say choosing a particular vocation or choosing to give up a bad habit that was detrimental to your health. Uh, those are examples of, of significant defining moments that shape your life forever. And for many of you who are my age, most of your major defining moments are, you know, in the past. Uh, but for those of you who are younger, as I have been emphasizing over the, over the past few months, you will be confronted with choices that will significantly shape the rest of your life. And if you don't make the right choice in those moments... It can create some very unpleasant consequences with which you'll have to live for a very long time. I had a chance this week to uh, get together with an old friend, uh, someone I worked with for a while and, and went to church with back in the late 70s and early 80s. And he was sharing with me as we were kind of catching up with one another some of the struggles that he and his wife have had 
with a decision that they made years ago to adopt the two small children of his wife's sister after his wife's sister passed away. Her passing scarred those children and created many difficulties for himself and his family, even to this day. This message today will kind of conclude this series on defining moments, and I hope and pray that the defining moments of the biblical characters we've studied will will help in some way to prepare you to better handle those important moments in your life. Next week, I'm going to begin a new series on the one thing our world desperately needs more than anything else. And, and not only what role we play in that, but more importantly, what barriers have to be overcome. But for the next few minutes, I want to talk about the person who experienced the greatest defining moment in the history of the world. In fact, no one will ever experience a greater defining moment than this person did, nor will anyone experience a defining moment that had a greater impact on humanity. One of the concepts with which many believers and non-believers struggle is the concept of Jesus being fully God and fully human. Ray kind of referred to that this morning in his talk a few minutes ago. John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel that in the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John indicated that Jesus was and is God. And Paul explained it like this to the Colossians in chapter 119. In him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God. The Hebrew author wrote in chapter 2 verse 17 that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest, the Hebrew author wrote in chapter 2 verse 17 that he had to be made like his brothers. The high priest under the old covenant was the mediator between God and man. The brothers to which the Hebrew author was referring were human beings, of course, like you and me. So Jesus was made like you and me in every respect. He was fully human. And so the concept of being fully God and fully human is a concept we we just struggle to wrap our minds around. Many Christians rationalize the sinless life of Jesus by acknowledging that, hey, he was fully God. I mean, that gave him a distinct advantage over us. And yet the Hebrew author in chapter 4, verse 15, wrote that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So he was made like us in every respect and tempted like us in every respect. Because Jesus was in the flesh, he experienced the weakness of the flesh just as much as you and I do. His flesh was no different than yours or mine in every respect. So to say that he was able to avoid sin because he was fully God contradicts the fact that he had the same weaknesses and experienced the same temptations that you and I do. 
And this leads me to the Garden of, of Gethsemane and the defining moment Jesus experienced the night before he was crucified. I mean, without question, this was the greatest defining moment ever because of the impact that it had on, on, on humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time. And if you recall, after Jesus and his apostles celebrated the Passover together, they, uh, with the exception of Judas, who left before the meal was over, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus prayed in the garden three times, as Terry read for us. And he prayed for the same thing. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. In other words, you can do what I'm about to ask you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus, in his spirit, knows that this is the plan. But, but due to the weakness of the flesh, he doesn't want to have to go through this. Just like you and I would not want to go through it. Jesus was pleading with his father for this to be done a different way, knowing that his father could actually do it a different way. And Luke mentions in chapter 22, verse 44, that Jesus at this moment was in such mental agony. He prayed with greater intensity. And he, he perspired to such a degree that sweat was just dripping off of him. Now, you know, I've experienced sweat dripping off of me many times in my life, but never as a result of praying. The mental agony he was experiencing was creating extreme stress on his physical body. Jesus' ability to follow through with God's plan was so iffy at this point that Luke says in verse 43, an angel appeared to him to strengthen him. God was concerned and sent an angel because this was the crucial point in God's plan of salvation. If Jesus was unable to complete this, it changes everything. Now, it's not really revealed to us what the angel did or said to Jesus. But this, however, isn't the first time that Jesus was helped by an angel. You know, if you recall in Mark 1 and Matthew 4, after Jesus completed his 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness, it indicates that angels attended to him or served Jesus in some way. And according to Hebrews 1.14, this is what angels do. Hebrews 1.14 reads, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So I, I would interpret that to mean that you and I have probably been served by an angel at various points in our life and may again. So Jesus received the same help that you and I have. The help that Jesus received was possibly revealed in the next verse where it reads that in his agony he prayed more earnestly. We learn from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 that when you pray, the peace of God, which is beyond our understanding, guard your heart and your mind in Christ. So, so prayer is, is more than just communication with God. It actually helps to strengthen you. And Scripture clearly teaches that at times God does strengthen you. You know, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, 
for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That was a next step memory verse a few months ago. So God sent his angel to strengthen the resolve of his beloved son in his weakest moment and the most crucial moment for Jesus and for you. And the other issue that really complicated this for Jesus was what he said to Mark. Or I'm sorry, what he said in Matthew in chapter 26, verse 53, when the mob came to arrest him. And Peter, of course, pulled out his sword and he began swinging and he struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. And Jesus said, stop that, we're not doing that. And he healed the man. But at that moment, Jesus said, do you think I cannot call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's a pretty telling statement. And what that tells me is that Jesus knew he could stop this whole thing immediately. All he had to do was say the word. That, that is to me, is what makes this the greatest defining moment that ever was and ever will be. Jesus knew he could avoid this. That God would grant his request to stop it if he said the words. He came close to saying the words in the garden. But he said, not my will but your will be done. No one will ever experience a temptation greater than this because Jesus also understood that he had to do it. You know, it was the primary reason he came to dwell among us. And when Jesus returned to Jerusalem for the last time, seven days prior, his crucifixion in, 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 uh, before his crucifixion in John 12, Jesus told his disciples he was going to die. In John 12, 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. I mean, that, that was his spirit talking, not his flesh. Jesus' fleshly nature does not want to go through this, but, but his spirit was saying, you've got to. The plan of salvation hinges on this. This is your Father's will. And this, again, helps confirm for me that Jesus was truly human. Otherwise, his desire to avoid this would not have been a struggle or even a temptation for him. Fortunately for you and me, his, his spirit prevailed. Jesus' spirit overcame the weakness of the, of the flesh. And, and oh, how thankful we are for that. When you think about the fact that Jesus was as fully human as you are, had the same weaknesses you have, and was able to overcome his flesh. You know, I, I think it helps you to face your battles with the flesh with greater courage and determination. Defining moments are opportunities to strengthen your character and your life. They are opportunities to glorify God when it really counts and, and who knows if God might not send an angel to minister to you in, in that moment. Some of the most difficult defining moments you will face involve deciding whether to follow the flesh or the spirit. 
The Apostle Paul explained how difficult it is to resist the flesh. You know, in Romans 7, he said, you know, I, I do things I don't really want to do. And that was, just, that was just his flesh talking. And I can honestly admit that the greatest mistakes I've made in my life were, were the result of choosing the flesh over the spirit. You know, most couples today think um, they have to live together before marriage to find out if they're compatible. And we all know men and women are compatible physically. I mean, God made us that way. We all know that. So the real issue is emotional compatibility. You know, and, and, and you don't need to live together to find out whether or not you're emotionally compatible. You know, that, that's what dating's for. It's, that is simply a decision to follow your flesh rather than your spirit. And that's why it's so important to spend as much time with God as you possibly can and, and to know him as deeply as you possibly can. We talked about that last week with Judas. I, you know, I encourage young parents, you young parents and parents, uh, to be, just to, to make sure you read God's word to your children every day. Train up your child in the way or he or she should go and begin as early as you possibly can. There are, you know, they have today, they have great children's Bibles that they can understand. And the sooner they learn about Jesus, the sooner it can help, help save them and, and you from terrible heartache later on. There are no guarantees, I understand that, but, but at least you, you'll know you did everything you could. When you spend time regularly conversing with God, letting him talk to you through his word, conversing with him in prayer and, and living it out, you, you begin to develop a godly character that'll help you in those weak moments. You know, his wisdom will be, become embedded in you and will shape you more and more into the person who is like him. And, and that should really be your goal. Tony Campolo tells a, a story about a, a drunk who was miraculously converted at a Bowery mission. Prior to uh, Joe's conversion, he was viewed as a hopeless, dirty wino. And it seemed as though his existence in the ghetto would, would fade away one night in a drunken stupor. But fortunately for Joe, he found Jesus. And he made a life-changing commitment to Jesus. And, and he was transformed. He became a compassionate and caring person who spent his days helping in the mission. There was no task uh, too lowly for Joe. He cleaned up the vomit of alcoholics. He scrubbed down the restrooms of, uh, of careless drunks. He assisted men into bed when they were too drunk to find their own bunk. And always maintained a, a smile that communicated his gratitude for just being able to help. One night when the missions director was giving an evangelistic appeal, a repentant drunk came to the, to the front and began to pray. He prayed, oh God, make me like Joe. Please make me like Joe. And he kept shouting that over and over again. And finally the, the director stepped down and said, you know, I think it would be better if you prayed, make me like Jesus. And the man looked up and asked, is he like Joe? If a person that you come into contact with doesn't know Jesus, would he or she want to be like you?
Elbert Hubbard once said, the sculptor produces the beautiful statue by chipping away parts of the marble block that are not needed. It's a process of elimination. When a sculptor begins his work, you know, he, he works from the outside in. But when a person's being transformed into the image of God, it's just the opposite. Jerry Bridges once said, we take what we think are the tools of spiritual transformation into our own hands and try to sculpt ourselves into, a rob- into, into robust Christ-like specimens. But spiritual transformation is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the master sculptor. In other words, the way the Holy Spirit works is, as I said, just the opposite of a sculptor. The sculptor works from the outside in, the Spirit works from the inside out. The Holy Spirit works on the heart and the mind until the whole piece is God-like internally. And when the inside is God-like, the outside will become God-like. When a sculptor completes a masterpiece, and it looks beautiful on the surface. Peter encouraged his readers to focus more on the inside. Speaking to wives in 1 Peter 3.3, he wrote, it's not not fancy hair, it's not gold jewelry or fine clothes that, that should make you beautiful. No, your beauty should come from within you. The beauty of a gentle and, and quiet spirit that will never be destroyed and is very precious to God. The old saying that beauty is only skin deep should never be true about a child of God. Peter also, a few verses later, encouraged husbands. Chapter 3, verse 7, in the same way, you husbands, you should live with your wives in an understanding way since they are weaker than you. But show them respect because God gives them the same blessing he gives you. So as the master sculptor chips away the imperfections of your heart and you are confronted with these defining moments that may alter your life forever, you are more likely to do what is in accordance with God's will. Such that godly decisions and choices and behavior will be less difficult for you. And that will be beautiful in the eyes of God. As I said, you'll never have a defining moment as significant as Jesus did. But you may have defining moments that cause some serious stress in your life. It's almost a given that you'll have similar defining moments where you have to decide whether to choose what the Spirit wants or what your flesh wants. And God's purpose for your life is to, is to, of course, to love and honor Him so that you can be saved. Your ability to fulfill that calling will depend on your relationship with Him, how well you know Him, as we talked about last week. If you seek His face and, and, and wisdom, your defining moments will more often than not bring glory and honor to Him, and you will fulfill God's purpose in your life. There is no greater purpose for your life. And there is no greater reward than God fulfilling his purpose in you. And just as important as this defining moment is the decision whether or not to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Now your, your flesh is saying, no, don't do it, don't do it. You're not ready yet. It's not the time. But your spirit is saying, your flesh will never be ready. You need to do this. And you need to do it as soon as possible. Like today. 
There are a lot of important decisions you'll make in life, but this one tops them all. Because as many of you know, when you submit to the Lord in baptism, He forgives all of your sins. And He gives you His Spirit, who is the master sculptor, to begin working and chipping away at your heart. And without the Spirit of God, you cannot become the person God intended you to be. And so today, this could be a defining moment for someone. Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We offer you that opportunity now, today, to make that choice as we stand and as we sing.